We actually have a lot to cover this morning because we're going to try to finish uh, Luke chapter 20 and get a couple of verses into chapter 21 that go along with that. Uh, so we have to move pretty quickly. So I'm going to ask you just to, to try to hang in there with me this morning. Um, but really, we want to go to Jesus today and have our hearts and minds uh, go to him. Uh, that, you know, that is why we're here. Um, we're not here just for fellowship or just to be taught something or to be encouraged. Um, we may receive all of those things, but our main point is to meet to Jesus, um, to be in his presence and to sing his praises. Um, and so let's go to the Lord again in prayer and just ask for that uh, one more time this morning. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege to be here today, dear God, um, the privilege um, to have another day on this earth to praise your name and to give you glory. Um, another day, another opportunity to make a, a difference um, in our world um, because you have given us purpose, God, and you have given us um, a message and a hope and a life um, to share. And so, Lord, um, help us to be faithful to do so. Teach us um, through your Son this morning, through the words of your Son, um, as we read the Gospel and just um, convict us where we need to be convicted, show us truth where we need to see truth, um, help us to um, live out what we know to be true, dear God, we pray. Um, but Lord, for every um, hurt, and for every pain, for every um, problem that we face uh, today, we pray that you would provide uh, the needed comfort, Lord. Thank you that your grace is sufficient for each day. Um, and Lord, that you are available to us each day. And we thank you. In your name, Jesus, we ask it. Amen. So we want to end in Luke chapter 19. Um, Michael preached last week, and he ended it in uh, the end of 19. Uh, in verse 45, it says, that he, Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, and as saying to them, It is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Now, so that, that sets the scene. You know, remember Jesus had come, come back into Jerusalem. He came in lowly riding, you know, on a, a, a colt. Um, a, a young donkey, and uh, you know he came in in, in a, a humble way, um, as he is saying that he is, you know, he is really the king. He really is the the savior and king. He is the one, uh, but he does so in a humble way, um, as he fulfills you know prophecy concerning himself. And you know he goes into the temple and he says, you know, it's written, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he's, you know, agitated and he's angry with the people who were, you know, there using the things of God just to make a profit, um, just to exploit people and to um, make themselves, you know, wealthy. And so in his anger, he drives uh, them out. 
And it says he's teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him. But they were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear Jesus. And so that's the scene that we have um, as this goes on for several days as we pick up into chapter 20. And so we're going to read, let's go ahead and read the verse, first eight verses of chapter 20. It says, One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? And he answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they, they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And that's a pretty interesting scene that we have here. I, I love this, this scene that we have here in the scripture. As you know, these, the chief priests, the scribes, the leaders of the people have all conspired together to, you know, how do we stop Jesus? How do we kill him? And they're trying to figure out a way to do it. And so what we're going to see in um, chapter 20 is that there's a, basically try to set a series of traps for him. But Jesus is so wise and so good um, at what he does that they're not able to trap him. Uh, they come to him with this question, you know, what authority are, are you doing this under? And now, the reason that Jesus doesn't give a, a direct answer is very, very clear. They don't give him a direct answer because they, he knows their hearts that their hearts are not sincere. Does that make sense? He's not going to give them the right answer because he knows that they don't really want to know the answer to that question. In fact, I believe at the deepest core of who they are, they already know the answer to that question, but they've just rejected it because of the implications for their lives. Because it means they're no longer the ones in charge. It means they don't get to hold on to their you know, traditions anymore. And so, they don't want to let go. They don't want to let go of being in charge and have God be in charge. And so, they are not going to answer that question with sincerity. And so, Jesus answers their question with a question. It's pretty wise there. When he answers a question with a question, and he asks them this question, he takes them, actually, he's going back to the beginning of his ministry, and his ministry really begins with the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is calling the people to repentance. He's, you know, says he's making a, a, a straight path for the Lord. Um, so he's in the wilderness, and he's, he's baptizing people with this baptism of repentance. He's basically saying to people, you know, do this if you want to be right, you know, show that your heart is right, you know, with God. You know, humble yourself before God. And he's preparing the way for Jesus. And so Jesus asks the question, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or from man? So I, I kind of like this scene. Um, you know, you can see it in your mind, perhaps. Of, you know, they get the question, they're kind of like looking at each other like, uh-oh. And you can almost see them like get, get into a huddle. Kind of like, okay, what, what do we do now? And so they go through their options. You know, they go through their options. They go, well, you know, if we say that... 
uh, it's from heaven, he will say, well, then why didn't you believe John? You know, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from man, we know the people thought that John really was a true prophet of God, and so they might stone us to death. And so what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And so they decide not to answer the question. And so then Jesus replies, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Because he's coming to them and says, you, you know, if you don't want a sincere answer, then you're not going to receive one. If you don't want to know the truth, then there's no point in telling you the truth. And so there we have it. All right. Let's continue on, verse 9. It says, he began to tell the parable, to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third And this one they also wounded and cast out. And then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Man, that's powerful. That's a very powerful message that that Jesus gives and it comes across as pretty harsh but he you know he wants to give them this parable about this man who owns a vineyard but he's away in a far country he sends three servants to go and to take you know his portion and it's not that he's you know not generous to those who are doing the work but as the owner of the land of the owner of the vineyard he he deserves to receive you know part of the fruit uh, part of the harvest and each of the three servants that he sends get beaten and thrown out. And then he says, well, let me send my son. But notice the response. This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And so they realize that Jesus is saying this, you know, against them. You know, and, and what is, basically, what is he saying to them? You know, we have this time, you know, where God had, you know, sent you know, the prophets, but, you know, the prophets that we see, as we see in the Old Testament, many times the prophets were, you know, rejected. Uh, Many times the prophets, you know, lost their lives for the message that they, you know, had uh, from God, but certainly they were often, you know, beaten and, and cast out. And so, you know, God in his love, you know, he sends um, his beloved son, and now he, he was given basically a prophecy that they're going to kill him. They're going to even do worse, you know, to him. And so that's the message that is being given. And he, he quotes from Psalm 118, 
when he says that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And so we read Psalm 118. I'll just pick up in verse 19. It says, Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You know, when we say, let us, you know, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. That's a, you know, kind of a common verse. You may, you know, even see, you know, people write that on a wall or, you know, put it on a, some sort of plaque or something, you know, and have it hanging in their house. Um, but there's a context for that. Why can we, how can we say this is the day the Lord has made? Let us rejoice and be glad in it. How can we say that in days of tragedy? How can we say that, you know, on your worst day? On your worst day, when the worst things have happened, how can you say this is the day that the Lord has made? Let us rejoice and be glad in it. There's really only one way that we can say that especially on tragic days, in tragic times. We can say that because ultimately Jesus is the gate of the Lord. The the righteous shall enter through him. We can say it because God has answered us and that he has become our salvation. You know, that's how we can say on our worst day, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Because apart from God, if you remove God from the equation, your worst day is just that. It's your worst day. There's no way to rejoice and to be glad in it. Because it is only bad. It is only evil. It is only sadness and you know disaster. But even on the very worst day, If God is your Savior, you can say, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You know, we talk about Jesus being our our anchor in the storm. He's our solid, you know, rock. Jesus, you know, gave, you know, the parable when he talks about the, you know, the wise man who uh, built his life on on him and his teaching. And the foolish man, you know, who, who, who doesn't is like the foolish one who builds his life on, you know, his house on the sand. When the storms of life come, you know, boom. Just like the storm would knock down that house, the storm would knock down that life. But he who is built on Jesus and his teaching can stand in the day of trouble. He's built on a firm foundation. You know, when tragic tragic things happen um, in a family or, or a community, I often think, you know, what are the people who don't have Jesus do in these times? What are the people who don't have Jesus do in these times? How, how, do we, how do we handle that? How do we handle that? How do, I mean, how do they handle that without Jesus? Because it's, you know, it's hard, you know, and you have the Lord, you know, and it's hard because you, know, you have to take you know, the trust off of yourself and, and trust God. But what about the people who don't have a God that's real to trust in? What for them? You know, and that should give us, I think, a great um, sympathy and also remind us 
you know, of our, of our purpose, of our purpose, to share people that there is a, there is a God to believe in. There is a, a Savior who loves you, a Savior who paid for your sins on the cross and who rose again, who is victorious over sin and death and who offers you life, an abundant life, and is there to receive, if you will, but humble yourself and ask for it. When, um, after the death and resurrection of Jesus and we're in, you know, in the book of Acts early on in, in chapter 4, um, Peter, you know, they, they, they heal a man and they get brought down before the, the high priest and the chief rulers and scribes and they get asked this question in Acts 4 verse 7, by what power or by what, by what name did you do this? It says, then Peter, being filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to you and all the people of Israel, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by, this man is, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. The builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is no sal- there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be, sta- be saved. That's powerful. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. And so when Jesus says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, He's saying, you know, that they had a their elders, the leaders of the people, the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, you know, they all had a responsibility. They had a responsibility to build, you know, the house of God well. But instead of building that, they were rejecting the keystone, and that keystone has become the cornerstone, the one central for the foundation of the whole building, and that cornerstone is Jesus himself. You know, he's giving prophecy to them that they are rejecting him. But then we, we can't help but notice that those who rejected him, he says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And so this is what we have in the scripture about Jesus when it comes to Jesus being the stone or the cornerstone or the rock. He does, he's one of two things. He's either the rock that you that you stand on and that your life is built on through faith in him, in obedience to him. Or he is the rock that will ultimately return to crush you. It's the same rock, but based on your faith or lack of faith or purpose or lack of purpose, it has one of two outcomes. To either be a rock of salvation or a rock of judgment. You know, and we talk about this in the scripture. That's, this isn't, you know, a, a super pol- politically correct, you know, message to give. Uh, it's a message that a lot of churches have gone away from saying. You know, they only will tell you God loves you. And, you know, God has your best life now available to you. And they only tell you that part. But they don't give any sort of warning of, of what the implications are for rejecting God. 
from rejecting Jesus. And I would actually argue that that's a false love. Not to tell you the truth about God's judgment is a false love. It's a love without truth. It's a false love. But, you know, many people just want to hear what they have to hear. And, and, you know, they want to be able to believe in something but have everything else be just as equally valid. You know, this is a day and time that we live in. We live in a day and time where, you know, there are no bad ideas and that every idea is just as good as any other idea. And so, you know, if you're taking a math test and it's 2 plus 2 and you can say it's 4 or 400 or or negative 55, and all those the teacher is supposed to check is correct. You know, this is, this is the age and time that, that we live in and that we have to deal in. And there are now becoming, you know, consequences, you know, being looked down upon in our society if you actually say, no, I believe 2 plus 2 is actually 4. And it always has been 4 and it always will be 4. And that's viewed as being you know, intolerant. Now, at the same time, I want to say this and acknowledge this in this day and time that we live, there are a segment of people, you know, and they, they may, some of them may truly be, but, you know, they will say, hey, we're Christians and, you know, this is it. And they're so harsh in their defense of truth that they've actually lost love. And as far as, you know, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've lost love, you've lost it all. Because Jesus tells us, you know, to, to, love, to love everyone. Jesus tells us to love our enemies. You know, there's going to be someone actively seeking to physically take your life, and the command of Jesus is to love them. That doesn't mean you're not going to, you know, remove yourself from harm. It doesn't, you know, mean you're not going to, you know, call the cops or, you know, whatever else if somebody's physically trying to kill you. But in your heart, the command of Jesus is for us to love that person, to pray for that person, to desire to see that person's life changed and to know God. And so we need to remember this, that as followers of Jesus, we have an equal responsibility to love and to truth. And those two for the follower of Jesus are inseparable, are to be inseparable, love and truth. One without the other is a disaster. If there's one thing you remember this, from this morning, is that you, you know, if you separate love and truth, if you do not have, hold them tightly together, that your ideas and how you live life will be a disaster. I would say that as frankly as I can say it. As clearly <laughs> as I can say it. Love and truth we have to hold to so, so tightly together. Love without truth isn't love, and truth without love doesn't do anyone any good. Okay. I want to say one th- more thing about this cornerstone. First Peter 2, it says, verse 9, But you are, a, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, 
that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who who are not once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of of visitation. So if you're going to be built on this chief cornerstone, if you are going to have your life built on Jesus, then you become part of a royal priesthood, you become part of a holy nation, you become part of a special people, that you will acknowledge that God called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You know, that's one of the things that it means to be an authentic follower of Jesus is to acknowledge that, you know, I was in darkness and God called me out of that darkness and into his light. And that he's given you a a purpose. He says, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, you know, abstain from sin and have your conduct honorable. He wants to remind us that this is not our permanent dwelling place. That on this earth, we are, we are just passing through and our lives are, are, are short. And it's short whether you pass away at 18 or at 98. Life is short. In the grand scheme of eternity, life is on this earth is really short. Think how many generations have been before us. Life is short. And so we should not live as people who are living for this you know, world, like that this is our true home, that everything is set up and revolves around the here and now. But we need to live as people who are passing through as we have a, a future home, a future kingdom. Our true home is waiting for us. And so in that, um, you know, it, it, we need to understand even our, the places that we live in, you know, there's a value in, you know, you know we call our, you know, our place home and we want it to be a place of hospitality. And, you know, a lot of great things happen in our homes. We, and, you know, but we need to understand it's just a physical space. It's just a physical space. And we shouldn't hold on to it too tightly. We shouldn't have our affections and our, our loves be so much for you know, our phys- the physical things and for our physical co- comforts when we understand whether we have a little or a lot or somewhere in between, all of that is temporary. That's all temporary. It's not going to last. And so our, our true striving has to be for the kingdom of God and for our future home. Now, this doesn't mean you shouldn't buy a house. Or, you know, but just understand what it is. It's a place to lay your head, and it's a place to be hospitable to other people. It's a place to invite people in, you know, to have a meal and to share Jesus with. It's a place for fellowship and a place for um, reaching out to your, to your neighbors. That's what it is. It, it's a tool. And as you view it that way, that's a helpful thing. But if you view it as something permanent, 
then it can be an unhealthy affection. Understand it's temporary. And, and if that pushes a button, then some things are really going to get pushed here in a minute. But I'll move on. Verse 19, it says, The chief priests, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him on that very hour, for they perceived that they had told this parable against them. They understand that they are you know, being viewed as the ones who you know, rejected the prophets of God and have rejected the, son, you know, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that they you know, are the ones that Jesus is saying will come under judgment. They understand that's what's being said about him, and they want to kill him. It says, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere they might, that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarii, it's a piece of money. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God, the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. So again, you know, the conspiracy of the chief priests, the scribes, the leaders of the people to try to catch Jesus in a trap. And so here's another trap that they try to lay for him, you know, is as, you know, they're living in a Roman occupied, you know, territory as they are not a sovereign nation you know, on their own and able to make their own decisions. And they have to use this you know, Roman money to you know, do their business, and they have to pay taxes to this you know, government that is you know, viewed as evil in their eyes and oppressive. And so they ask Jesus, you know, should we pay tribute? Should we pay our taxes? And then Jesus answers them, as he takes the coin and asks whose inscription is in it, they say, Caesar's. Render this to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And really, I, th- I believe there that Jesus is making more than a statement about the necessity to pay our taxes. Because, you know, that's how often, you know, we, we talk about this, you know, should followers of Jesus be, you know, pay taxes? I, you know, I don't want my taxes, you know, to go to an unjust war or to, you know, do things that, that are against what you know, I believe and, and hold to be right in the sight of God. I don't want to support those things with my money, so should I pay my taxes or not? And usually the, re- the response that we come back with is render the Caesar the things that are Caesar's, you know, what Jesus said. Because obviously the Roman government was not, you know, um, a, a place of, you know, freedom and doing good to all people and liberty and justice for all and you know, not even in word was it those things. You know, slavery was rampant. Abuses were rampant. And so, it's, but, but what I believe, and what I want to really get to this today, is where when Jesus says, you know, render to God the things that are God's, I want us to be forced to answer that question. What is God's? What is his? And what are the implications? What is our answer to that question and what are the implications 
of the answer to that question. What is God's? What is the implication of your answer to that question? Now what's interesting here next, next up are the Sadducees. Verse 27 says, there came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And so, you know, in this conspiracy to trap Jesus, you have people who would normally not be um, allies working together to try to, to get Jesus. It's kind of like, you know, you think back to World War II, um, you know, in terms of philosophy of, of, of life and of government and those things, United States and Russia, democracy and communism, you know, at odds with each other. Normally not working together. But hey, there's Hitler and the Nazis, and we've got to stop them. So we have this common enemy. So two that would normally not work together work together to stop a common enemy, right? So that happens. And this is what we see happening here as the Sadducees and the Pharisees are working together. Normally they'd be at odds with each other, debating each other. But they both view Jesus as a common, greater enemy. And says, There came some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. Okay, so stop there for a second and understand what's being said. So the Sadducees, you know, they denied there's a resurrection. They knew Jesus taught about a resurrection. And so they're trying to trap him, you know, and and people will come up with, like, you know, what's the most outlandish example that we can think of? Well, you know, it's this issue of marriage. And Moses said, you know, if a man's, you know, I want you to think about this. He said, you know, if a man's, you know, wife, uh, you know, he dies, leaves the wife, they have no children, they have no, you know, heir, what's supposed to happen? Well, if there's a brother available, that brother is supposed to marry her. You know, and, it's, and really, when you, when you think about it in these, these times, that that was the social protection, you know, for that woman. It was a, it was a, a good principle to have in place um, to protect people and to make sure that they were taken care of and they weren't destitute, um, that this woman would have someone to take care of her and she wouldn't just be, you know, abandoned um, in society. So it goes along, okay, so this woman, she marries the first guy, he dies, marries a second brother, he dies, all the way through all seven brothers. Now, of course, now if that really happened, we've got real questions to ask about this woman and, you know, what she's putting in the breakfast, you know, I mean, that's, we got some, we got some real questions to, uh, this, it seems like we might have a widowmaker on our hands, but um, in any case, you know, they come up with this, this kind of this outlandish example And then Jesus says this to them in verse 34. He doesn't even acknowledge how ridiculous their example is. But he says, Jesus said to them, 
The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, that's the future kingdom, and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now is he not... God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have well spoken, for they have no longer dared to ask him any question. And so Jesus is, is hitting another you know, issue here about what you trust and what your hope is and what you believe in. where your, your heart's deepest desire is. You know, as Jesus tackles this thing about marriage, and he's very clear that marriage is a temporary institution. It's something for here on this earth and in this time. But in the future, you know, you're, if you're married, and you know, both you and your spouse are, are followers of Jesus, and you, you, know, you die, and when you're in heaven together, you're going to be brother and sister and Christ, you're going to be together, you know, you're going to be children of God, but you're no longer going to have that union that you had here as husband and wife. It's different. You know, and sometimes, you know, we, we like, you know, being, being romantic and everything, you know, we like to think, well, I want to be married, to, I want, you know, forever and ever. You know, you even say, you know, we say, you know, things like that sometimes. People say those things. But, you know, in most of our wedding vows, have it right. Till death do us part. Till death do us part. That there's a, a separation of the, the, that contract, that covenant relationship. The contract is, is no longer binding, and it is done when one or both people die. And it's not going to be put together again in heaven, I, you know, and some people are just like get really sad about this because they love their wife or their husband so much. And you should love your wife or husband so much that, you know, you would want to spend eternity with that person. I mean, that's not a bad thing to, that you would desire that. But there has to actually be a greater, we have a greater purpose and there's a greater desire. Because all of us who are followers of Jesus are viewed as the church and the bride of Christ. And that's better for all of us. And we know, you know, we're still going to know each other. We're going to be great friends with each other. We're going to fellowship with one another. But there is a change in that, you know, relationship. It's a, it's a temporary thing. So, there we have it. Um, but there is clearly, Jesus is saying clearly, that there is a resurrection, that God is the God of the living and not of the dead. Like, what would be the point if once your physical life on this was over, what would be the point in believing in God if, if your physical life, when it was done, that was the end of the story and it was all done? Well, there wouldn't be much point to any of it unless you believed, you know, here and now maybe this God could give you some sort of blessing or favor or whatever and make your life easier. But that'd be a very temporary sort of blessing and a temporary way, I mean, a very short-sighted way of looking at things. And it would ultimately leave us with a small God. 
But we have a great God who's the God of the living. He's a God of resurrection. He's God who has power to give us life and an eternal life with him. That's awesome. So now we see it, that he's clearly saying there is a resurrection, so he's, he kind of puts the Sadducees, you know, tells them that their doctrine is wrong. He uses their, you know, their scriptures, what they believe in, to show them that they're wrong. And the scribes, you know, they kind of like that because you know, they believed in the resurrection, and so they're like, hey, well said, Jesus. You know, they kind of like lose for a minute there, like, hey, we're here together to get Jesus, and they're like, well, at least we got one point on that one. You know, we were right about that, you know, sort of thing. They kind of lose, I think they might have lose their focus. Like, no, wait a second, we're actually uh, all trying to kill this guy. Um, it says, well, they no longer dared to ask him any question. And now we're finishing up the chapter. We're getting closer, folks. Just hang in there. He says, but he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Anybody confused? (laughs) That could be a little bit of a tongue twister or a little bit tricky uh, to understand, but we'll break it down. So Jesus says to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? Now the Christ is the anointed one, the Messiah, the promised one of God. How can they say that the promised one of God, the Messiah, is David's son? He asks the question. For, and he gives the problem. For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord. Now the first Lord that is there is Yahweh. You know, in your Bible, you might, you might see it, all, even if it's kind of small, all the letters there are capital. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. When you see that, um, in your Bible, that's usually a, a reference to Yahweh, the name, Hebrew name for God. Okay? So, and we know that that's going to be inclusive, basically, of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Lord said to my Lord. Now, that second Lord um, can be used for God. It can also be used for a person. If you think about Spanish, just to use for an example, the word Señor. We can call Lord, like the Lord God, we can call Senor. We can call a person, you know, in a high position, Senor. Or we can just say, you know, a mister as Senor. You know, it can have very different meanings based on the context, right? So, but he's saying, the, how did the Lord God, the Lord Yahweh, say to my Lord, and that's David's Lord, that is the Christ, this is the Messiah. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The right hand is, you know, the place of honor. Um, David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Now this we have to understand a little bit about how things are, are viewed and done. The one who comes first is by nature greater than the one who comes after in any sort of lineage. We're talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who's greatest? Abraham. Why? Because he's first. Okay? You know, God had called him out, but he sets it as he is first. Now, David, you know, he's the one who has the, you know, in his lineage, he's the first 
you know, great king. He's the one with the eternal kingship that God had promised. And so he is viewed in terms of being king as the greatest of Israel's kings. But what Jesus is saying here that is that even David called the anointed one that was going to be his son, Lord. What does this mean? That David is acknowledging that one who comes after him is greater than him. So what does this mean? It means that the son of David would also be his Lord and that David realized that the Messiah, the Christ, would be divine and superior to himself. Where David is just only human, the one that's going to come after him and his seed is going to be more than just human. To be human is more than human. That's where we get the divinity of Christ. We read um, Psalm 110 in this prophecy of David. He says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power and holy garments. From the womb of the morning to the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We don't have time to get into the whole priest forever and the order of Melchizedek this morning. But it is just another illusion that Jesus is he's king, he's the high king, he's also the great high priest. He's also the ultimate sacrifice. You look at it in, in every description that we have of him, he is the ultimate one. He is king, he is high priest, he is sacrifice, he is all of it. And he's the only one who could be all of it. Okay, we're closing here now. 45, and in the hearing of all the people, he says to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So remember, just a minute ago, the um, scribes had said, you know, well said. You know, they tell Jesus, um, teacher, you have well spoken. For they no longer dare to ask him any question. So, you know, they give him, they give him a compliment. And then Jesus turns right around and tells the people, beware of the scribes. <laughs> you know, they say to him, hey, Jesus, that was really good. And Jesus says right back to, you know, they're like here and right back to everybody. Beware of these people. Yeah. Beware of them. You know, he's not, he's not just taking their flattery. He knows who they are, really are, and he knows who he really is. And he says this to all the people. He says, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. They like to dress the part. They love greetings in the marketplaces. They love to be seen and to be acknowledged. They love the best seats in the synagogues and the place of honor at feasts. They... They love to be um, thought well of. They love to be promoted. But he says this about them, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. 
They're just playing a game. Jesus says they will receive the greater condemnation. Now, why will they receive a greater condemnation? Because of their position of responsibility and their access to the truth. There's always more condemnation and more, you know, for those who have more responsibility and more opportunity. God is a just God. And for these who have access to it all. And, and, and that's where we have to say for a lot of the church, you know, things that call themselves Christian kisms, call themselves the church and everything, you have access to this book. And access to God, and access, you know, I mean, you have all the truth there, and all the love there, and yet, you know, completely live opposite of it, and basically just make this a pretense, then certainly there is more condemnation and judgment for that. You know, people many times act as if God is... You know, and and the, you know these sorts of things are are just like play toys, are, are tools to use to advance themselves, and they may <laughs> feel like they get away with it here and now on this earth. But Jesus knows, just like He knew the scribes in their hearts, He knows everybody today who uses His name inappropriately. Anybody who does whatever they want to do and slaps the name of Jesus on it in order to get the approval of others. Jesus knows all of that. And he will judge them for it. We also have to be very careful ourselves that we never allow ourselves to get to that place where we're playing games, where we use Jesus for self-promotion. And it says this in um, next chapter, first verse. And he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw also a certain poor widow putting in two mites. So he said, truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. For all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God. But she out of her poverty put in all the livelihood that she had. And so he sees the rich and they're putting in you know, they put in what they put in, but after they put in what they put in, they're still going to be rich. You know, it doesn't change anything really for them. But they get to look good, and they get to be appreciated by the people. And, you know, in this time, you know, with people giving big gifts, you know, they would, people would come before them and have the trumpets and dancing and everything, and then the person puts their money in, and everybody gives their cheers. Big hurrah, big party, right? Look how great of a thing this person did for God. But it really wasn't something great that a person did for God. It was something that a person did for themselves. Again, for self-promotion, for the, how others would view them, to be a great person in the society. It probably also even had economic benefits. You know, oh, I want to do business with that person because they're a good person who gives the things of God. Good for business. But this widow, she gave everything she had out of her poverty.
so Jesus, you know, is God, and we need to understand that God's economy is different than ours, and how he views things, how he judges what something is worth, he judges it completely different than we often do, or that we're prone to do. Because we can easily look at it just in a simply, you know, dollars and cents, and go, well, you know, that person gave, you know, $50,000, and this poor widow gave two cents. Of course, he's, his gift is more valuable. It's the economics of the matter, right? But God is looking beyond the strict numbers of the economics, and he's looking at the person's heart. And the person, that, that widow who had nothing, hardly anything to give, but gave it all, like her heart, the value there is so much greater than the wealthy person who just gave out of their excess. And so here are our main points for this morning. We'll finish up with that one. But main points for this morning is that Jesus does have all of that authority and power, that he is divine. That Jesus is the only name under heaven by which we can be saved. That he is our answer and he is our way that we can say this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And that Jesus desires for us not to have the hearts of hypocritical Pharisees, but rather a heart like the poor widow, completely dependent on God and willing to give all at any time. Most of us in here, we're not poor widows. But the question, that's not, you know, God isn't asking you to make yourself the poor widow, just to make, put yourself in that position. Of course, to make yourself the widow, you might also have to, you know, kill your husband. and that'd be, He obviously doesn't want you to do that. He doesn't want you to do that, ladies. doesn't want you to do that. Yes. Yes. Yes, indeed. Um, so, but, but what he does want us to have is to have the heart like the poor widow. He wants us, man and woman alike, to have the heart of the poor widow that we are completely dependent on God and that we are willing to give all at any time. So that's really the questions that get driven home. It's like, am I completely, if, even if I have money in my bank account, do I live and act like I trust that that's my safety? Is that money I have in my bank account? Or is God actually my safety and my protection and my shield? Whether I have two pennies or whether I have 20 million pennies, am I willing to give all of it at any time if the Lord asks? Those are the questions, and those are the harder questions to ask. And the more you have, the harder it is to say yes. And the more family you have, I think also it's harder to say yes. When I was a single you know, man and you know, young, easier to be radical in decisions because you know, I don't have you know, little rugrats you know, with their mouths open needing food. You know, I'm only worried about my own, you know, I've got to take care of my own survival, but now I'm responsible for the survival of, you know, crumb crunchers. Right? So, and we love the crumb crunchers, you know, in this, in this church. Don't get me wrong. We know our hearts. But we have a responsibility to make sure they have crumbs to munch on. And so that changes, can change things and can make us more dependent on ourselves and less dependent on God.
And so that's what it keeps coming back to. Am I completely dependent on God? And I'm I'm willing to give him anything that he asks at any time. I would posit to you this morning that the answer to that question is not always yes. Even even if we know the answer to that question should be yes, the answer is not always yes. But when that answer is not yes, we need to recognize that and to lay it down and say, Lord, help me to say yes to you. Because sometimes we don't have the strength on our own to even say yes to God when we know we should say yes to God. When we know the answer intellectually, but it's not at the place that our heart is, we need to say, God, I don't have the strength right now to say yes to you, but I need you to change my heart, and I need you to give me that strength. Lord, I know that it only intellectually makes sense to trust you 100%, believing that you created all things and that all things are truly yours. I know that it intellectually it only makes sense to trust you 100%, that if I'm trusting you with my eternity forever and ever, Certainly, here and now, in this moment, in this decision, I should be able to trust you, but I don't. That it is hard. That I want to be in control. That I want security. But not that's in you, but in what is tangible before me. That I can hold in my hand. God, change my heart. And help me to open my hands. There's nothing wrong with having things in your hands, folks. If those hands are open. When it becomes a problem is when those hands are closed. May God help us this morning to live open-handed lives towards him. For his glory, for his honor. Putting him first in all things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the privilege to come together to worship you. God, um, ultimately, we acknowledge that you have all authority and you have given all authority to your son, Jesus. And Jesus, we thank you that you came, that you lived humbly among us, and that you taught humanity what you expect of us. But we're thankful that you don't expect us to, to have it all in ourselves, but it's in you, dear Jesus that through faith we can put our trust in you and have our, our lives built on your rock, on the rock that is you. And that by obedience to your teaching, we can build on that rock. Help us, Lord, to have our hands open towards you at all times. Change our hearts as they need to be changed. Remove sin from us, we pray. Lord, help us to give love and truth together at all times. In your name, Jesus, we ask for your help. In your name, Jesus, we pray.